Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 304 is recorded live October 27th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Derek Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I've had to turn my furnace on. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I am just wonderful. And we also have Kevin Ailes joining us this week. How are you doing today, Kevin? I am just fine. Darren and yourself? I am doing great. Other than it getting dark a little early, it's uh, really not been too bad. You know, a little bit of rain. So that might have uh, an effect on some of the diving conditions. But overall, it's not been too bad. A little light in the chat room this week. Normally, by this time, we have a few people hanging around in there. But uh, if you want to know how you can participate, you can go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Follow the links. We are on Talk Show Record Live, usually about 9 o'clock, show 73759. You can also listen to us on the WRVO Radio Network. You can... Uh, Listen to us and other great outdoor programs 24-7. Follow the links on the website, www.scubaobsessed.com. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Get the news out of the way because we really want to talk about some diving. Uh, first article we have up, and I thought this one was just a little interesting. You know, As you're grubbing around, you find all sorts of unusual objects, but how about this? Uh, looks a little bit like a torpedo. A little bit rusted, a little bit corroded. Maybe something we would throw in the scrap heap, but if you did, you'd be out five and a half million euros worth of cocaine. The 75 kilograms were seized off of Clare, Ireland. Civilian said to have spotted the tube off the coast after reporting it to revenue. It was found to contain 75 kilograms of cocaine inside the torpedo. They said this is the first time the narco torpedoes have been found in Ireland. Torpedo had been stagnant there since August and was about two meters long, contained 75 one-kilogram bags. They said this is typically a method used by South American drug cartels to transfer drugs across the Atlantic to Europe. The discovery showed the growth of drug-related crimes in Ireland. Reports stated that sometimes the drugs are destined to reach Ireland, sometimes Britain and Europe bound. Typically what they'll do is they'll take these torpedoes, place them somewhere in a port, and then retrieve them with a scuba diver. Somebody was mighty unhappy about losing them. Did I mention the uh, street value of the drugs? That's, I mean, 75 kilograms. Uh, a That's little over 5 million euros. Okay. Yeah, 5, five million yeah, euros. So for... that's probably about six, you know, five and a half, six million dollars. So a little, little, little. I should have looked at the header there, but that's a lot of drugs. Wow. Yeah. Somebody's unhappy. Yeah, a little cash there. So the torpedo was thought to have broken off a vessel. So apparently this was somehow attached. I'm looking at it, you can see there's some kind of a, of a hook near the near the back of it there. Yeah, you, wow. you can see it was probably some sort of mounting they had to attach it on whatever they were doing. I bet you they'll get the grade 8 bolts next time. 
Yeah, <laughs> name on the upgrade. Yeah, and that's what I'm guessing it happened is that it had broke loose. That's a lot of a lot of money you might not want to be missing. There's a few people yeah. when they went back to report that might not have been a good day. It might be more than just a, just a torpedo was missing that day. And there's a survey that shows the impact of sea star wasting disease in the Salish Sea. Analysts have uh, analysis of data collected by scuba divers in the Salish Sea shows severe impact on some species, especially the sunflower sea star. They said the sunflower stars are a major predator. They said this is probably going to change the shape of our ecosystem. The sea star wasting disease broke out in 2013, causing a massive death of several species of sea star. Infected animals develop lesions that eat away at their tissues. With limbs dropping off as the animals die, the disease has been linked to a virus, although environmental factors may also be involved. These sunflower stars are the most susceptible species, so we're concerned that it could be driven down this nonspecific virus. The Salish Sea, which straddles the U.S.-Canadian border and includes the Puget Sound and waters east of Vancouver Island, is home to a diverse population of sea star. The animals are important predators eating urchins and other animals. The area is known for its sea star diversity, so we wanted to know what was the impact on different species, uh, Gaydas said. Researchers used a combination of data collected by scientific divers during the 2014-2015 long-term data collection. What they're thinking is going to happen is that uh, the species mix is going to be a little bit different. They expect that uh, uh, effectively disappeared. The numbers of urchins have increased, which will in turn lead to more grazing on kelp. Uh, Gaydas said that he and his colleagues are in discussion with the National Marine Fisheries Service to get sunflower sea stars listed as a species of concern. So it's been going on for quite a while. You would think at some point here uh, you'd find some varieties that would have built up a resistance to the virus and start coming back. Well, I don't know. How, how do uh, sea stars reproduce? I mean, are they done by, by eggs, or I think they just basically split off, don't they? Yeah, well, that, that might be a question to, to Google. Let's see what the great big book of everything has to say. I just know there are some types of reproduction which do better about passing on immunity than others. And if they reproduce sexually, then, yes, they would be uh, able to have immunity. But if not... Yeah, they can... Sea stars can reproduce sexually and asexually. Oh, okay. Uh, Best of both worlds. Lucky yeah. them. So they're, they're able to produce by themselves or they can mate with uh, males and females. Mm-hmm. Well, that then, release, so you're right, yeah, the, if they reproduce sexually, then yeah, you'd think there would be some that would have some immunity on it by now. But it depends on just just how lethal the virus is. You know, there are some things you're just not going to get an immunity no matter what. So is it like sea star Ebola then? Um, yeah, apparently so. High, very high mortality rate in these things. What's weird is when they reproduce asexually. You know, if an, uh, I guess how that works is that they can, uh, like, you could split off an arm, and each piece will grow back to being a full sea star. That's like kind of like cutting off your hand and then having a new you. And then I, I wouldn't about... quite take it that far, but yeah, <laughs> I guess in theory, yeah. I guess it's, well, Darren, I guess we're quite fortunate that uh, people don't repro- reproduce asexually then. Yes. Well, it wouldn't be as much fun either. Oh, it would make the election a lot more entertaining. Oh, gosh. Wow. You're like a bad day in uh, SpongeBob land. <laughs> And kind of on that same thread, we have farming bacteria to boost growth in the oceans. 
And uh, this is in the show notes. We're not going to read the whole thing. So if you really geek out into the, the scientific papers on this, they're talking about uh, the ability to fix nitrogen. Uh, yeah, they're talking about nematodes and clams and, and other items, uh, how the bacteria work. And uh, I, I find that sort of stuff interesting. Really won't read very well for the podcast. Yeah, it's a very technical article here. I'm sure a lot of detail, a lot of information here, but uh, very deep. We got multiple PDFs here to view, and along with it, I mean, this. Yeah, you could. Yeah, if you're into that sort of thing, you got a lot of nice papers. And Florida has named their very own lionfish king. David Garrett of Ormond Beach has claimed the lives of 3,324 lionfish with a scuba diver spear gun. Samson, an Israelite, slew thousands estimated Palestinians with a donkey's jaw. <laughs> wow. There's somebody who's just trying to use part of their college education. Yeah, let's get a little bit of old history there. Uh, Garrett is a Florida's first lionfish king. He'll be pictured in the cover of next year's Florida saltwater fishing regulations. His feet will be featured in the Bible. Garrett's also getting a lifetime Florida saltwater fishing license to be awarded with his title when the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission meets in St. Petersburg on Thursday, November 17th. Those 3,324 lionfish are not all that Gareth has slain, just the ones he caught between May 14th and September 30th, opening and closing dates for the lionfish challenge. He accounted for 20% of the total reported uh, lionfish uh, that were taken during that time, 16,909. John Dickens took 2,408 and posted two YouTube videos demonstrating how to catch them with a pole and snare. And all 95 divers participated in the challenge and removed 16,609 lionfish from the water. No divers, by the way, were removed by lionfish. More okay, opportunities. What, <laughs> what's that? What's what's his what's his trick? How's he doing this? I want to know. I'm, I mean, if he's the master at killing lionfish, spill the beans, guy. What are you doing? Well, he's using a spear gun. And I'm picturing that uh, the the trick is it's the same thing as the guys who find all the bottles. You got to dive. You want to take them. You got to get in the water. I haven't heard anybody say that they're hard to catch, other than you want to make sure you're not going to get stabbed by them. So it would be interesting just to kind of see what his setup was. He must be pretty good with it. Whatever he's doing. They said there's more opportunities for lionfish glory remaining till next May in Gulf Coast waters of seven Panhandle counties: Escambia, Santa Rosa. Okaloosa, Walton, Bay Gulf, and Franklin. Anyone turns oh, in 100 tails from lionfish caught will be awarded a tag, allowing them to keep one red grouper and one cobia more than the daily rod in real bag limit. Oh, they're bribing you. That's interesting. Which well, he's, it, not, he's not just using a spear gun. He's got a, a pole spear and snare. He's, well, there's there's two guys in the article. So you've got the, the top guy, which was Garrett, and then you had... Uh, John Dickinson, Dickinson. yeah, and okay. he's using the pole spear, the the pole spear and snail snare. Yeah, but, but, snail. but he got twenty four hundred of them with that that technique. I mean, these these guys are knocking them dead. Yeah. Bring it on. Well, there's only ninety five divers, so I'm betting a lot more were taken. Just people didn't take the time to go and do it. And this other this uh, these gentlemen who are at the top were so publicized so early. I'm sure it discouraged many people from reporting. Because at some point, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't have a shot. I, I've only got eight times I'm going to go diving this year. That means, that, you know, how many would would you have to have each time? You'd, you'd have to fill your boat. And frankly, most most divers are not going to make uh, 
you know, sparing, shooting, eradicating lionfish, you know, the, the main part of their dive. I mean, it might yeah. be a, you know, a few dives throughout the season they do it, but. I'd certainly like to give it a try. It'd be nice to find an excuse to get down there and, and, and try some. Plus, they'll yeah, talk well, about the food. Yeah, I'm hearing they're pretty tasty if you prepare them right, so. Yeah. Yeah. So what the, I think what they're trying to do so this next year they've got the you know the the changing and some of the the permitting if you get more than a hundred lionfish tails and they're saying in addition the first ten people or groups that check in five hundred more lionfish during the one year period will be given the opportunity to name an artificial reef. They said four teams have qualified to name an artificial reef so far and two of the four have already been named and they give you a link to a website where you can see what those are. Speaking of artificial reefs, I think you have one of those in the show notes tonight. That will, will be, let's see. Yes, I think we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, we do. And we can jump to that one. Ship that saves seven in perfect storm to be sunk off of uh, New Jersey. The USS Zuni survived submarine-infested waters in the Pacific Ocean during World War II as it torpedoed warships, to, uh, torpedoed. Tor- oh, it, it towed those tor- torpedoed yeah. warships. I was thinking, how do you get tow and torpedo? But these uh, warships that had been torpedoed were being uh, towed by the USS Zuni. It aided in the Battle of Iwo Jima. Half a century later, it was renamed the uh, Tamora. It overcame gale force and 40-foot wind- winds to help. 40-foot winds. <laughs> wow. 40-foot winds? <laughs> That's a lot of beans. Uh, to help save seven people off the New England coast in a rescue effort immortalized in the book The Perfect Storm. They said the ship that made so much history will soon be sunk off the southern coast of New Jersey to help expand the artificial reef that attracts both divers and anglers. A decade-long effort to turn the ship into a museum and memorial was derailed when the hull sprung a leak four years ago, causing significant damage to key parts of the ship. Having the Tamora sit on the ocean floor isn't how many who served on a ship envisioned its fate. For some, the emotional attachment of the ship is more powerful than mere nostalgia. The man who commanded the ship during the 1991 perfect storm said the sinking of Tamora is a better outcome than being demolished for the scrap metal, a common ending for old ships. It's sad when you see a ship sink, but some good will come of it, said retired Coast Guard Captain Larry Brundicki of uh, Sanapee, New Hampshire. It's been repurposed. It's being used. If it's cut up, who's going to know that the razor blade came from uh, the Tamora? Well, it always seems that there's a group that's attached to a ship that thinks it should be restored and turned into a museum, but, you know, there's only so many ships that we can do that with. And, yeah, it, it does have some historical, you know, import here, but, um, you know, hey, it's going to be a dive attraction for some time. It's going to be generating revenue as a dive attraction here, good for the economy. Um, what more could you ask? Yeah, it's it's a challenge with all these vessels, and you and you look at – there are many ships that are, are certainly worthy of it, and, and it's hard to come up with funding. Uh, well, and, 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 and restoring them, you know, when they bring them in to, you know, use them for a, uh, you know, a museum, you know, there's a great deal has to go into the cleaning and the repainting, and, the, and, and then, then once it's a museum, then the staffing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, these museums, they don't bring in what, you know, because we're, we're all marine buffs, we're, you know, we're, you know, we are. I'm not in my are, buffs. I'm dressed. Okay. Well, that, okay. That's a little too much information there, but all right, all right. Uh, but we, we, we all like boats. You know, whether the boats are on the surface or beneath the surface, we like boats. So, you know, for us, it's hard to imagine that you know one of these museum ships wouldn't be just full of people like us 
standing in line to pay money to go inside. But the reality of it is, when you go to these museums, the general public just, they're just not as entranced with them as we are. You know, um, yeah, we, we could spend all day, you know, uh, there's a really nice LST on display over there in Muskegon. And it has a great big war display, in it, World War II display in it, and it's um, all staffed with uh, you know veterans of different wars there. Uh, really, really cool display. You can spend the whole day and not see the whole boat. You know, the whole thing's open to the public as far you know, you know from the, from the builds to the stacks. You can see the, the, this whole boat, but there's just really not that many people that go to see these things. It's 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 a shame, but you know, which, war doesn't which, got out. Which vessel is that? Um, there, there, there's, there's a landing craft on display oh. in, um, in, in Muskegon. I mean, uh, it's an, an LST with, with, with the big wide opening front doors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, large boat, you know, designed to have tanks coming in and out of the thing. It's, uh, it's, um, right there in downtown Muskegon. It's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a really cool boat. Yeah. Cause in Muskegon, I think we also have the, uh, uh, the, the USS Silver Sides, Silver Sides is there. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, where's the Milwaukee Clippers? Isn't that up there in Muskegon too? I know that there's a big old steamboat there. I think it's the Spartan, maybe. No, I don't know, Clipper. A... I've got to see where that's at. And I should know because my dad was a curator on there. Uh, and I went up and helped them. That's pretty bad. I know. I, I was just up there last week, and I know that there are a number of big old boats there on um, Muskegon Lake. Um, you know, you've got uh, a, a straight deck um, freighter up there. You know, looks like you know 1950s vintage. Yeah, you've got the the SS Milwaukee Clipper, okay, uh, which is a retired passenger ship and ferry that went uh, between uh, Milwaukee and uh, crap uh, Muskegon. Uh, what's interesting about that one is that uh, it had been uh, the parts of the vessel. It had been uh, I'm trying to remember what they what they call the term, but it was started to be built for one purpose and then got remodeled. Uh, but some of it was started the same year as the uh, Titanic. Hmm. It's a much more modern-looking boat than the Titanic. Oh, it's a, I mean, oh uh, yeah, it's a very uh, stylized. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I wasn't aware of the name of the boat, but yeah, there is a, a large um, passenger cruise ship. Um, looks to be dated from the 1950s, sitting there on um, you know, Muskegon Lake. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'll say that there's the old um, you know, straight-deck freighter sitting there as well. And sit there for a number of years. Yeah, and then and then I'm thinking of you know you've got other boats to take care of. You've got the USS Olympia that is there in Philadelphia that they've had. You know, it's gone back and forth. The museum didn't want it, tried to separate it from its collection because it was costing too much to maintain. And then they were able to uh, decided to come up with some funding, and they've they're going back and taking care of it. That was yeah. Admiral Dewey's flagship. Yes. I mean, isn't that amazing how much history that has? How many generations mm. that boat's been afloat? There are, are so many of these different boats out there with a great deal of history. Yeah. And, you know, there's always a group behind it that wants to, uh, re, you know, have them restored and, you know, turn into a big floating museum and thinking the tourists will line up for them. And people that think like us, you know, would, would. But there are just, you know, so many of us out there, unfortunately, um, Maintenance is just tough. At some point, if you really want them to survive, you have to somehow figure out how to dry dock them. Because uh, the, the, I mean, that's the thing that they ha- they had with the Olympia is uh, just the keeping the hull intact. Well, you know, word to our listeners: uh, if you like these 
these kind of attractions, uh, I would encourage you to go see them. Um, you know, there are a number of them out there which are really, really cool. Uh, you mentioned the Silver Sides there in, in Muskegon. Um, that is a World War II submarine uh, diesel. Um, it is the deadliest uh, American submarine still in existence. There is no other submarine out there that sunk more tonnage still exists out there. Um, yes, that's a Silver Sides. Really cool looking submarine. Um, what is it about? about but but 250 foot long. It's 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 a good sized boat. Yeah, um, maybe not quite that long. I'm trying to remember what it was, 210, two or so. Uh, but I mean, they, they and they've kept that. That's in remarkable shape. It's been cut open, so it's it's fairly accessible. It's not quite handicap accessible, but you can walk down steps. You don't have to climb down hatches to get into it. Uh, there were several movies made during World War II and afterwards that were based on some of the events that happened on that vessel. Uh, many of the movies, because, you know, one submarine rarely has enough excitement to make a whole movie, so they take they kind of glean some of the best items. But if you remember a movie where they had, uh, they did a surgery with a spoon on a on a person who had appendix, appendicitis, uh, that actually did happen on this. Wow. Okay. Well, I will say, you know, with the, the silver sides in the museum, they're like, you can... It's completely open. Once mm -hmm. you pay your admission fee, you can see this thing from bow torpedo tube to aft torpedo tube. Um, it's completely open there. I guess they even have it set up so you can spend the night on it. So you can yes, yeah. Sleep if you're sleep in the bunks, yeah. Um, yeah. If you're a Boy they, Scout troop, this is an excellent or, or a church group or you know uh, you know robotics team. Uh, you can go and apply, <laughs> and you can can uh, spend a night on it. And, I, and I, I think you were closer than I was on length. It is 311 feet, 9 inches. Wow, I, I, I knew it was, a, it was a big one. I knew it was a big yeah. one. Yeah, and then that was another one that both my dad and I had helped do some work on. Uh, mm -hmm. Now now it's it's everything that we've done has probably had to been redone a dozen times since then. But Well, and, then, and, and that one even still runs. They do make a yes. point to start the engines up on that a couple times a year. So that, yeah. that, that one still runs. Yeah. Um, then you got another one... Uh, what is it? The uh, Valley Camp that's up there, uh, up, up, up by the Keweenaw. It's a big museum ship. It's an old, it's a you know, um, a, a flat deck freighter turned into a museum ship. Is, is that the one that has all the information about the uh, Fitzgerald on it? I think I'm, I'm starting to look for that myself here. But it's uh, you know, a, again, a straight deck freighter. Yeah, museum ship Valley Camp. Sioux Historic Sites. Okay, so I guess it must be must be near the Sioux. Really? It was up there, and I didn't even see it. How could I miss that? Yeah, see, that's what we need to do is put some guides together because we've had some people who have requested that we owe. I need to put the, together kind of a vacation plan for somebody, uh, just kind of explaining if you've got a week and you want to do some diving, what would be some good locations along, you know, the Lake Michigan, Great Lakes area. But I think you could do the same thing for museum tours. You could uh -huh. make a, a spot. You could you could start over. I mean, it might be good to, to start in Wisconsin, work your way down through Chicago, come back up. You know, we've got uh, museums. you got South Haven. you got Muskegon. There's plenty of floating ones there. You've got the uh -huh. Straits, Thunder Bay. I mean, all some great spots to take a peek at. Oh, yeah. The, the uh, Museum in Thunder Bay is a, is a must-see. I mean, uh, you know, they got that, 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 that recreated schooner in there. You know, that, that schooner in, in the uh, Alpena Museum is a recreation of the uh, Cornelia Windy 8. Was that the one that you were going to talk about tonight? I'm going to do Ralph Simmons tonight. Ralph Simmons, okay. Yep. Well, That'll uh, be the uh, 
featured wreck of the week, the Ralph Simmons. Well, we've got another wreck the, that they thought they had figured out who it was. The, they said the mystery deepens around a historic tugboat sunk near Thunder Bay. They said it's not that of the historic tug, which they thought it was the Mary Ann, which was the first ship registered in Canada. Divers thought they had found the wreck of the fabled ship three years ago near the Welcome Islands and Lake Superior off the shore of Thunder Bay, Ontario. But now archaeologist has completed a survey of the wreck and has determined it's most likely not that of the Marianne. We're going over historic photographs of the Marianne and some of the structures of the shipwreck don't match up with the historic photographs, said Chris McEvoy. Avoy? Chris McEvoy? McVoy? Why do I not want to be able to say that? McEvoy. McEvoy? Okay. Research archaeologist for the Lakehead University works with Superior chapter of Save Ontario Shipwrecks. One example, the stem of the vessel, he said, is very, very front has a different. If you look at that, we've seen on historic images, the vessels, they can change a little bit over time. They can be built up, torn down, built up again. But the issue is a lot of these changes, they can't occur without really changing the overall structure of the vessel. I'm 95 to 99% confident that this is not the Marianne. The wreck in question was discovered by divers David Shepard, and Robert Valley in 2013, we were supposed to be dropped on a different wreck, Shepard recalled. Instead of hitting it at 90 feet, we hit the deck at 55. At first, I was thinking, something's wrong here, and then I was excited. The ship's profile led divers to believe the ship was the Marianne, which was registered in 1867, Shepard said. We always went with available evidence at the time. McAvoy is working to determine the identity of, identity of the wreck discovered by Shepard and Valley. I'm going over a list of shipwrecks in the area I know is likely a tug also. It's of similar size to the Marianne. It's also of similar age. Shepard said there's still parts of the mystery wreck we haven't been examined. There's an aft cabin that's yet to be explored. In the front, there's a foredeck and an aft deck, that which are still intact. Due to close confinement, needing specially trained to go in them, haven't really explored them that much. Shepard said we're going to start looking at some, at getting some people in there. Might find the piece to identify what the wreck truly is. So the deck's at 55 feet, and they couldn't find any shipwreck divers who are qualified to go in and look? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, um, hello, let's can, go. Can, road trip. Should we all raise our hands? Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, th- maybe it's Canada, like really though. confined or something. And that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of odd to think that. Well, well they just did. They, they, they're just, they're taking their time. It's in Canada, and you just don't get to dive. Like in Michigan, there'd be people all over that if you could well, find yeah. it. Well, yeah. But you kind of got to look at the methodology here. You know, I mean, if they're... Planning on getting a hitting at the bottom, well, hitting the, the wreck at 90 feet and hitting it at 55 feet, and this is 2013. This is you know that they had side scan. Um, at that depth, they should know <coughs> how deep to the boat. I mean, a difference of uh, you know 35 feet and only 90 feet or 55 feet of water. Um, you got to call the methodology into question, Fred. <laughs> well, what I'm what I well. That's two. Yeah, two divers who weren't looking for a shipwreck. They're looking for a wreck that they were frequently diving on. So I think what they did is they had, you know, either their side scan going or something going, and it must be close to where other wrecks were. So they just said, ah, there it is. Look at it. it's on the sonar. You know, it's like if we were going for uh, Havana, you know, and it's not buoyed yet. It's maybe the first dive of the year, and you just go and you see the rubble down there, and you drop down, and you discover you're on a completely different wreck. Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, we have, but uh, <laughs> I don't like know. deja vu. I, I don't. I, I just 
got a question because even with Havana, you know, you, you don't have a that, that big of a difference in you know thirty five feet. But they're not they they weren't looking to to find a wreck. They were just looking to dive. So I can I can forgive them. The archaeologist, if you're spending time, would you not? Who who is an archaeologist? He either must be the most controlled person or just really not that interested. Because I would have wanted to be in there. Wouldn't you want to go into that wreck and see what's there? Oh yeah, well, well properly geared and all that. I mean, if, if they weren't, you know, if they were just going to go bounce a wreck, you know, that yeah, there's more equipment they need, of course, you know, to do a penetration. But at 55 feet, yeah, you do need yeah, well, you need training, you need some some technique, you know, line reels, all that sort of stuff. But I would I would go take the class if I'm the archaeologist on that project and I have that opportunity. You better believe I'm going to learn how to do that. Well, and, and there's no shortage of people who can do a wreck penetration at 55 feet. No. Okay. So. Plus, you would think if it's in that good a condition, I mean, and, I'm, and we're assuming that it is, that might have some way to help identify it. Yeah. I mean, if it's in good enough condition that they're, they're able to identify all these features, which, you know, they're able to rule out it being other wrecks, then, yeah, it must be in pretty good shape. Well, here, here's the caption of the photo, which they've got, uh, you know, it's a black and white marker stick. It says, Chris McAvoy's survey of the wreck is part of a larger effort by the Superior Chapter of Save Ontario Shipwreck to promote dive tourism in the region. Well, I would think if you're trying to promote dive tourism, you would have had, you know, all hands on deck, excuse the pun, to go and get people helping you document this. They seem to be going at such a leisurely pace. I guess I'm just impatient. Well, you know, I mean, there's only going to be so many ships lost in that area. Um, you know, that, that match that description. You know, they should be able to get down there, take some measurements, um, you know, get the layout where the cabins are on the deck, um, talk to a few people, you know, uh, museums. Um, should be able to, if they say that it's not the Marianne. Now, this might just be preliminary. They're only now realizing it's not Marianne. They haven't got that far yet. But I would think they would, you know, look into a little bit further before making an announcement, hey, we don't know what it is. Um, we have this idea, though, maybe, but... Yeah, because they, they just, said the next question is, since it's not the Marianne, they said, well, where is the Marianne? They said one possibility is a ship graveyard located between Welcome Island and the Sleeping Giant, which includes more than a dozen wrecks. They said it's very deep, it's very dark, it's very, very dirty water. When they did a harbor cleanups in the 30, they took a lot of derelict vessels out there and just sunk them. All the reports he's seen indicate the Marianne is not among those wrecks, uh, said Shepard, however, McAvoy pointed out that not all of the ships in the graveyard have been identified. In any case, Shepard said the silver lining is that Marianne is still out there somewhere waiting to be discovered. Well, you know, I know from looking at different possible areas for, um, I was kind of looking at Lake Superior a little bit to see, you know, what areas have been surveyed, what areas haven't been surveyed. And, you know, you have, oh, actually only very small portions of it have been surveyed. So Officially surveyed, yeah. Yeah, so you're going to continue. We're, we're in that point of time with everybody with scanners. Uh, you're going to have people find shipwrecks that aren't looking for shipwrecks. Plus, those who are looking are going to be able to slowly and methodically find them. Mm-hmm. But just the problem with Lake Superior is that it's, most of it is far too deep for, you know, your over-the-shelf scanner. You know, you're looking at some, oh, oh, some serious stuff. So. Yeah, the, the really deep stuff is going to take a little bit more time and effort than the shallow stuff. But I think there's, there's plenty of shallow things because I, I think that other than the storm just swamping something and you sink down or a boat being scuttled, a lot of them are going to be from hitting a, a reef and sinking fairly close. 
Yeah, but then unfortunately, well, a lot of them, when they hit the reefs, they uh, the, the reefs are on, often on the edge of very, very deep water. You have like quite a few of them that they, you know, yeah, that they, they basically ran aground from this reef that's sticking out. But then some drop the reef. Like look at the uh, Ganilda. You know, it actually hits a reef that comes within like, three feet of the surface. The pictures of the boat show most of the boat out of the water from hitting it. But then uh, when it slides off the reef, down it goes to 280 feet. Mm-hmm. You know, within feet of this three-foot reef, it goes down to almost 300 feet deep. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, there's just so much area of Lake Superior, which is just going to be very tough to search. And for, you know, for that reason, the isolation, lack of funds, uh, you know, actually a, only a very small part of Lake Superior has been searched. Now, now you've indicated some of it has been searched unofficially. What, what did you mean by that? Well, if, if I'm searching, I mean, when we go out, is it, we're not documenting that our, we're searching through some central organization and then they're keeping track of it. So you've got all sorts of people who are looking for different objects and might not tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mac has, has known uh, people who uh, are who have been paid to search for wrecks. In the process of looking for something that they're paid for, they find a lot of things that they weren't paid to look for. And they just don't give those numbers up because that might be a a paycheck down the line. So there's a lot of stuff that's been discovered decades ago that nobody knows about. Oh yeah, there has. And here we have a couple uh, more wrecks that have been recently discovered. Dave Trotter, well-known shipwreck hunter and discoverer has uh, located a couple more wrecks, two schooners that were found in Lake Huron back in the late, uh, that foundered in Lake Huron back in the late 1800s have remained uh, mysteries for over a century. And they were recently discovered each vessel has a unique piece of history, says Trotter. They represent a time period that you can only go back to when you leave the surface to send down to the deck of the wreck. The schooners Trotter discovered are the Venus and the Montezuma. The Venus is a two-mast schooner, 122.8 feet long and a beam of 27.1 feet. She was built in 1872 and worked on the Great Lake shipping lanes for 15 years before she foundered in a gale storm on Lake Huron, taking all hands with her in 18. 87, October 4th. Six lives were lost aboard the Venus. We discovered the Venus in May 2004, said Trotter, who was a founder and owner of Undersea Research Associates. The Venus had been on my bucket list for quite a while. He says the search area for the Venus is 40 miles off the coast of Point Aw Borks, Michigan. Point Aw Borks. Most Michigan towns I know the name of, and that one just doesn't even sound familiar, which is near the thumb. Once an image appeared in the side scan sonar, Trotter said three divers down to the depths of nearly 300 feet to check it out. Typically, it's quite difficult to immediately identify schooners, but as soon as my divers touched down the deck, they saw several grindstones scattered around. We knew we had found the Venus. He knew from reading historical records that Venus was the only schooner in Lake Huron that sank transporting a load of grindstones. Now, wouldn't that be something to get a permit to recover? <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> take some pretty hefty lift bags, I'm sure. That'd be worth it. They said uh, Venus is an amazing condition for a ship that sank 130 years ago. Oftentimes when a cargo ship containing heavy cargo sinks, it uh, dismantles when it impacts the bottom, but fortunately it didn't happen to the Venus. The Venus is amazingly intact. The cabin structure is still upright and present. Our divers are able to swim along the rails of the ship, which is also intact, and decking is in place. So is the anchor that's still attached near the bow. Trotter said he sat on discovery of the Venus for two years because he was busy finding other wrecks, including... 
the infamous Hydrus, which sank in Lake Huron during the Great Storm of 1913. Trotter's crew was also able to dive the Venus again earlier this past summer with a second mission designed to obtain clear video wreckage, uh, video footage of the wreckage. We hope to dive Venus again and continue exploring the interior of the cabin, where we may suspect many artifacts from the time period can be found. In June 2016, Trotter's team of skilled divers found another wreck, the schooner Montezuma, which went down to Lake Huron October 3, 1871. Montezuma was built in Cape Vincent, New York, in 1848. Uh, she was a 123 feet long with a beam of 25.1 feet. We're excited at finding the Montezuma because she's one of the earliest built vintage schooners of the time period. Trotter says his team were searching Lake Huron, about 35 miles east of Oscoda, Michigan, when the image appeared in a side scan at a depth of approximately 170 feet. Trotter's team of divers ascended the wreck site and began exploring. It took longer to identify the Mont- Montezuma than it did the Venus. Some historical records indicate the Montezuma had three masts, but we only located two masts. With some very good description of historical newspapers about the collision with the Hattie Johnson, we were able to locate the damage, then make a confident identification of the vessels, in fact, the Montezuma. Sank in October 3rd, 1871 in a heavy haze, caused by enormous fires that were burning near the area, had covered portions of Lake Huron, making visibility nearly impossible. Despite the conditions, shipping lanes for the Huron remained open and active. According to historical records, the schooner Hattie Johnson was traveling to two points off her course, and suddenly a green light. The Montezuma appeared across her bow. The Johnson struck the Montezuma just forward of the main rigging with such force the Montezuma nearly split in half. As the Montezuma was sinking, its crew abandoned ship and went aboard the Hattie Johnson, which was saying some damage but wasn't sinking. Johnson dropped the anchor and waited for the tug to tow her back to port. Montezuma is a great intact piece of history despite the impact area of the collision. Many times a bomb the lake is hard, or while sinking the ship hits at a particular angle, it literally explodes and dismantles themselves. That didn't happen to Montezuma, which allows the dive team to capture some stunning imagery. And he goes on. So these are some great finds. Well, yeah, and look at the video. Uh, the, there's a lot of video posts of the Venus I'm watching here. And, I mean, looking at a diver examining the ship's wheel here, um, you've seen the, the grindstones he mentions all over the deck. Kind of curious that the grindstones are on the deck. Uh, they do have some video going in the hold, and they show grindstones in the hold, but it's nowhere near stacked full of them. Uh, I would hazard to say there are more grindstones on the deck of the ship than there are in the hold. Well, um, could it be a matter of how, how, how are you going to move them around? On the deck, you can use a shore crane or some sort of rigging to get them on there. But if you're trying to get them on the hold, you've got to have guys muscle those down because you just you can drop them down and then where do they go? And then you've got to, wherever you're transporting to, you've got to lift them back out. So uh, maybe some, maybe they're going to, they loaded them up all at one spot and then they're going to slowly take them off and maybe some of the locations didn't have a way of lifting them. I suppose it's just odd to see them all on the deck like that because you'd think that that would make a very, you know, um, top-heavy ship then if they're not, you know, being used for ballast. So, no, I agree. In, in, yeah, in no, my just, just, novice thinking, just you know, just you, you be the judge. But you'll see an area that shows uh, quite a few grindstones on what appears to be the uh, port bow area, and I don't know, that's not necessarily a good place to keep your grindstones, but um, you know. Maybe that's part of why it went down. I don't know. Uh, often they would load these things up, you know, not anticipating you know bad weather. And okay, they're they're, they're good when it's you know when the seas are flat. Picks up and gets nasty, and down they go. But still, a great find. Very cool ships. Very cool pictures. Nice video of the Venus. Nice video. 
And we're looking at, uh, what is this, uh, 13newsnow.com. Uh, that's the website we're getting information off of here. Uh, yeah, they're, has, they're claiming that they're got a close relationship with Trotter and that he uses them as one of his exclusive outlets. But I noticed that you found him on a different website. Well, he's on quite a few here. Um, but I do know the news reporter they mentioned that Brent Ashcroft is someone who uh, is quite often involved in uh, ship Express reporting. Well, congratulations, Dave. Uh, is it Dave Trotter? Let me yeah, sure. no, Dave Trotter. I want to say Dale for a second, Dave Trotter. Uh, but you got to go out and look if you're going to find him, and he certainly does a lot of looking. You know, I, I spent a great deal. They said he found the second one in uh, June of 2016. You know, in June of 2016, I spent many, many hours on a boat with him, and he didn't tell me a peep about any of this stuff. Oh, I feel he, kind of disappointed. So. Yeah, he, <laughs> he didn't he, tell me a peep. He's an old hand at uh, – keeping a secret when it comes to stuff like that, so I won't take it personally. Uh, oh, he, no, no, but he, it's just like... <laughs> but, you know, you or me, if anybody was even remotely interested, I don't know if I could contain myself more than a week. I know when we uh, when the club had found Max Rack, that was, you know, luckily there's enough people around me who don't give a crap about that stuff <laughs> that it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't too terribly hard, but, uh, yeah, that'd be that's tough. Uh, but good for him. Yeah, and I... I do think he did mention something about the grindstones, though, at uh, what would have been it would have been the Arbold Underwater. I'm talking over there. He, he mentioned the grindstones, but didn't go into detail. Something about a ship of grindstones. Yeah, well, there's a few of these. As I'm reading it, it's like they 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 jog my memory. Like I I was at first I was looking, thinking, is this an old article? But he's done enough talking and presentations that I think that some of the items have come up. And he might not have spoke of them as their future wreck. Like he might have talked about experience of them because I've heard the same thing of the grindstones. Now maybe grindstones are cargo on several wrecks and we're just crossing them. Uh, I agree. I, I, th- I think he did say something about them. Well, I think that does it for scuba in the news. Uh, Kevin, you said you had a ship of the week, a wreck of the week. Yeah, um, I just thought it would be nice on our uh, podcast here to uh, feature a shipwreck of the, you know, each week. Um, we have, you know, wonderful shipwrecks here in the Great Lakes. Um, <clears throat> you know, here we have wrecks that you can go just a few miles offshore and see a well-preserved wooden schooner uh, of the likes, which you won't find anywhere else in the world. You know, you go to saltwater and these ships are eaten up by the woodworms within, you know, just you know, a few decades of being on the bottom. You know, they have many, many in the Mediterranean Sea, which they can only identify because there's a pile of cargo there. The boat is long gone. But what I want to talk about today here is the uh, Ralph Simmons, also known as the Christmas tree ship. Um, this boat had the misfortune of sinking in the same year as the Titanic. So even in its day, it did not get an awful lot of attention because all the shipping attention that year, of course, was going to Titanic. Um, in the aftermath and things going along with it. But I am pulling information here from uh, wisconsinshipwrecks.org, and I'm going to uh, momentarily I'll paste a link here in the chat room. Um, get this to cooperate. Yeah. But the uh, Ralph Simmons, also known as the Christmas tree ship, left uh, with a huge cargo of, of Christmas trees. Get this. Link in there. There we go. Link is in the chat room now. Uh, reports indicate that when she left 
the uh, Christmas trees were piled so within just a couple feet of the booms on the um, on the masts. Uh, she only had maybe perhaps two feet of freeboard, uh, you know, because she was weighed down so much with the Christmas trees. Now, this ship had been uh, bringing trees from the peninsula to Chicago for a number of years, and the captain, locate his name here, Captain Herman Schunemann, uh was known for being kind of a soft heart. Uh, they would bring these trees right down to Navy Pier, where they'd sell them. When they would come into town, he would dress up as Santa Claus on the deck. Um, be a big, um, big production when the ship came into town just to sell Christmas trees down at Navy, Navy Pier. They would, uh, word would get out, they were in town, and even the people who didn't quite have the money to get a tree would often go home with the tree. You know, he would, uh, negotiate, work with you, and he really didn't want to see a family not have a tree. So, you know, quite often a tree would go home just, just on a handshake. Um, unfortunately, um, by the time 1910 came around, there was a great deal of pressure from the railroads bringing trees down, and it was not as lucrative as it had been in the past. And the Simmons family was falling into some financial difficulty. That may have been what prompted them, you know, Captain, to carry such a massive load of trees down. But say when, when, they, when they left port, I'm trying to figure out what the port was they left, and it was in the, in the UP. I believe it was the southern coast of the UP along the northern edge of Lake Michigan is where we could get the trees from. And, you know, the, the ship was heavily overloaded and was sighted off of two rivers, struggling. Uh, snow, snow, snow squall closed in. Uh, ship dropped out of sight. The um, Coast Guard lifesavers were dispatched to go and assist. When the squall cleared, the ship was gone. Uh, they knew that it had gone down off of two rivers, not exactly sure where. Um, fishermen reported finding uh, Christmas trees in their nets for many, many years afterwards. Boat was found, I believe, 1980s. Where am I saying this? Oh, can't quite get the date that it was found. But this is a tech dive. The boat lies in 165 feet of water. I believe you reach the deck in approximately 140. Uh, boat sits upright. Uh, still has Christmas trees in the hold. Uh, but then, like I said, this is a, a challenging dive. Uh, so that's if you want to do one air, proper training. Um, but it's a heck of a wreck. Um, there were 16 there were sixteen lives lost on it, so you got to keep in mind, you know, this, this, this is a graveyard here. Um, I'm, I'm of the belief that the boat probably was in um, relatively poor condition when it went down. Um, the boat was built in 1868, 1868, Sank in 1912, so we're talking a 44-year-old sailing ship uh, at a time when 25 years was a pretty good run for a boat. So I'm sure she'd seen better days by the time she came around. But this is a marvelous shipwreck to dive. No, I have not dove it. Definitely on my list of, of boats to do, though. Um, you look at the pictures on WisconsinShipwrecks.org, and see very intact. Masts are not standing still, but uh, the hull is completely intact. Penetration opportunities with proper skill, equipment training. Very, very cool wreck. How, how deep did you say it was? To the sand, it's 165. Okay. I believe probably reached the deck at about 140. So it's not terribly deep. I mean, it, it's beyond recreational range, but it's it's in you know some of your beginning uh, deep diving areas. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes substantially off the bottom. You know, looking at these pictures here, um, I'm sure it comes a minimum of 20 feet off the bottom. You know, it's it's sitting upright on the upright on the bottom. Yeah, that's that's one I think I might want to try and get on as well. Yeah, I've I've looked at the logistics of it, and I know there are charters in the area who will take you out to it. There, um, they do run it as a tech dive though. Mm-hmm. Not going to show up with the open water card and go see the Ross Simmons, I'm afraid. So, no. Uh, well, a cool shipwreck. Very cool shipwreck, and there's been a lot of research done on this one as well. Um, they found that one of the anchors was deployed. They suspect that the uh, boat was in, going down, and they had uh, dropped anchor, <clears throat> hoping for rescue <clears throat> or possibly to ride the storm out. But the uh, storm was so intense, and there's a lot of actual damage to the boat um, around um, where the anchors are, are attached to the boat. Looks like it uh, took, a, took a real beating being anchored there, and that, that may have been what actually brought it down, was the beating from being anchored into the wind. And that is our featured wreck of the week. So this is the time of the show where we get to talk about some scuba dives. So I understand that there was quite a bit of diving going on this last week. Yeah, it looks like we've had our, our regular uh, Thursday Thursday group going out. I think you know more, more about that than I do, Jim. What's going on with Thursday Thursday these days? Well, we're still diving. Uh, we got out last... Well, let's see, there were a few who got out Thursday, last Thursday... And I think uh, six of us hit the river on Saturday, Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And then there was, uh, looked like there was going to be four or so or five that hit the river tonight. So, finding the usual bottle finds and goodies. And uh, you got out over the weekend, didn't you, Kevin? Yeah, I've been out quite a bit. Um, I got three three dives in on Sunday and then two dives in on Tuesday. Met up with uh, Dan and Gary up to Grand Haven. Um, we'd wanted to dive the Manistee. Now, the Manistee is kind of a challenging one. Poor visibility, entanglement issues, rusty metal. Um, we'd hoped the visibility would cooperate. Um, visibility did not cooperate, so we aborted that dive. We got in the water, um, but did not actually get to the wreck. The visibility was just too bad. Uh, but not far from the Manistee is a, a wreck that... Um, well, I refer to it as, as Dyer's Wreck at this point. Um, you know, Craig Rich had told me that he'd heard there was something over here but didn't investigate it. And I went and investigated, and yeah, sure enough, there's a wreck there. I wasn't sure if it was a, a pier or a wreck until Tuesday, but Tuesday I did find some ribs on it. So uh, I'm going to say it's uh, either a barge or a shipwreck, well, I mean, or both. Uh, um, Actually, got, got some pictures on it. Nothing real presentable, nothing real pretty, but I did get some pictures on it showing some machinery. That was dive number two. Dive number three, um, three of us joined another Dan um, up to uh, Muskegon Lake, and there's a new wreck that was found up there. Actually, I believe it was found by the uh, dive team in the area. And I know I was in Muskegon doing some training at the firehouse, and when the fireman was mentioning a you know, a wreck in Muskegon Lake, and gave us numbers on it. And we, like, it looks like Valerie's been there, and Valerie took, took a look at it. Um, you know, Valerie Van East of Michigan Shipwreck Research Association. There's an article actually you can find online about it. Uh, we went and dove it, and it's only 15 feet of water. We had pretty good visibility, about 15-foot visibility, which is pretty good for that shallow water. Um, boat comes about two feet off the bottom. Um, we're basically looking at, at the outline of the boat. Appears you kind of broken open at the bow. 
stern's pretty intact. Um, a lot of fish at the site. It's a pretty cool dive. Now, is that the razor blade wreck? No, the the, the manistee is the razor blade wreck. Ah. They refer to it as a razor blade because there's a lot of very sharp, rusty metal that can cut your suit up. And considering it's poor visibility and the algae is thick enough to screen out most of the light, you know, it's it's kind of a challenging dive. You know, Dan and I we did have redundant lights. We did have we did have reels with us. We had agreed on you know protocol of getting separated and searching for each other and things and all that. And um, but that we had also agreed that we were not going to go on the wreck in zero visibility. And as we approached the wreck, our five foot visibility turned into zero into zero visibility. So we aborted. Um, then Don Mack and I dove um, Diamond Lake on Tuesday. Um, we had a report of there being another boiler out there, possibly from another boat. Now, we already know of the South Bend shipwreck in Diamond Lake, and you know, there was t- discussion that perhaps this other boiler might be from the Cassopolis. Um, actually, there were a total of three, three large steamboats in Diamond Lake over the years. Um, Mac and I, we, we did locate the boiler. Um, what was the guy's name? Bill. Who gave us information on it? There, I should let him. I should give the guy credit who told us about it there anyway. But we uh, found, we, you know, with Bill's numbers, we were able to find the boiler without a problem, and took a look at it. But curious enough, that boiler is is hollow. There's really no pipes in it. Oh, and, the one that he had. Yeah, there's some video posted on the Mud Club page about the boiler, and. The machine's not moving real fast right now. Maybe you can maybe you can pull, find that video there. But the boiler is in about seven feet of water. We ran the hummingbird through there quite a bit and did not find anything else in the immediate area. Um, we found nothing within around 300, within 300 feet of the boiler indicating another boat. Um, the boiler itself is not a very large one. We measured it at uh, just a hair over six feet long and three feet in diameter. Although, in all fairness, uh, one end of it is blown open, is, is missing. So it may have been longer originally. Um, the end is blown open, though. There are no pipes in. You know, it's uh, Mac reached in there and could and could find no pipes. There's also a, a hole in the top of it with a lot of uh, grass and weeds growing out of it. There does not appear to be any pipes in there either. So it appears the entire boiler may be empty, devoid of pipes. But the only boiler remnants over at... Um, the South Bend site that we find were the insides of a boiler. It was all the heat exchanging pipes from inside the boiler inside, the, you know, over there by the South Bend. So I'm putting it out there that my opinion is that the boiler shell we're seeing in the shallows is likely the, you know, simply the exterior of a boiler, whereas the interior of the boiler is over at the wreck site. Um, we did locate a few more targets in the shallows not around the boiler but i'll say in between that boiler and the south bend site there are a few targets that we're going to investigate they were just too weed covered to and and we were getting short on light and wanted to get to the uh, south bend site before it was too late Uh, south bend and being a a nighttime anyway yeah i i agree with you on that boiler that could be the what it is it's just one location has the outside one location has the inside yeah, now the, there is a, a fair amount of exploded metal around the South Bend site. Uh, there looks to be um, a firebox that's blown up pretty bad. 
Uh, you can kind of make out the um, all the edges of what would be a firebox. And then there's some other metal that's just kind of been, it's really hard. To, oh, it's Bill Stoughton. Yeah, yeah. There's some other metal out there, which is, uh, you know, really hard to identify. It's, uh, oh, there are a series of lines which attach some of the different items of interest out there <clears throat> by the uh, the South Bend wreck. We had pretty good visibility. It was a night dive, but when Mac and I agreed we had close to 20-foot vis down there. It was, uh, you know, we were able to search the area quite thoroughly for more boiler pieces. Yeah, it was uh, Bill Stokeman. He's the guy that uh, gave us the the um, the numbers, well, the, the GPS location of the boiler, and I think he shared the video as well. He has a, must be a local historian, though, because he has many, many pictures of the uh, boats from the time period. Well, that's interesting. It's good that you were able to get on that. Had, had you div- dove that wreck much before then? I've had two dives on it before, but the visibility for those dives were pretty sad. You know, I don't think we had more than five-foot vis at either one of those dives, and we couldn't see that much of it there. And, and that's why we typically do it at the beginning of the year. It's a nice shallow wreck. It's a good break-in for the boat. You know, If the boats have been put up all winter, you can get it out in there and get it going. And then the lake, I, I've heard in the main part of the season, get quite a bit of traffic on. So. Now, I know... Jim, I know you and Darren have been on the South Bend more than I have. Um, supposedly the South Bend was burned. Uh, I haven't noticed any charred wood down there. I mean, I've seen it, you know, it's obviously in pieces, but have you guys seen any, any wood that's obviously burned on the South Bend wreck down there? I have never dove that wreck. No, okay. Yeah, I've I've dove it maybe, I think I've probably done four or five dives on it, and I don't remember ever seeing any charred wood on it. If that was the case, I think we just kind of, I mean, the story I heard that it exploded, that it was, uh, and but I don't know if it was an explosion, the boiler exploded and then it sank, or if it's a case of it was, it caught on fire with a hot boiler and then when it sank, the contraction of the boiler caused it to explode. The story I've heard on most often has been that uh, the boat uh, ended up sitting on the shore of the island for many years to derelict that it had, uh, had some kind of mechanical problems, was no longer serviceable. Eventually, the residents got tired of looking at it. They uh, towed it out into the lake, filled the boiler up full of dynamite, and blew it up and sunk it. That's a story I've heard from several people. Um, more recently, I've heard that it, it had burned before it had blown up, but kind of thinking that doesn't make a lot of sense because if it burned, it would have sunk. Um, it wouldn't have, unless it, unless it had burned on the shoreline while it was sitting there. Then if it burned in the shoreline was sitting, it'd be kind of hard to haul it out to sink it because it would sink as soon as you pulled it off the off land. So I don't know, but still, it's you know it's nice to have a, the remnants of a steamboat you can dive in an inland lake. It's only forty feet deep there. Now, Jim, you said you got some uh, diving in. Where did where did you get this week? Oh, let's see. This past week, I uh, hit the river Sunday, pulled a few milk bottles out, and that was about it. How's earlier, the... earlier last week, I was out in Lake Michigan, floated a couple buoys for the yacht club so they could recover their anchor systems off their race buoys. How is the uh, visibility in the river doing? Uh, Sunday was good. Uh, good five feet or more on Sunday. Current was pretty strong. Uh, not killer, but uh, it was there. He definitely knew it was there. How about the leaves? Were the leaves starting to cover stuff up? 
there were not too many leaves in the river at that point. Well, cool. I'm glad somebody's getting out and diving because I certainly am not. I'm starting what, to get that. Keep, Go ahead. What's keeping you? What, what's keeping you? Oh, just the obligations, things I've got to do. I've got a, a preseason robotics competition this weekend. Oh, come on. The water is an obligation. There you go. Yeah. You gotta get out there. Yeah. So we got robotics competition going on. And then, yeah, I don't know when it's going to be after that. Need to, I've got some stuff that I need to have checked out before I get back in the water too. And hopefully within two weeks I'll know. Yeah. It looks like this weekend, Kevin and I had talked about trying to get out this weekend. And Saturday does not look good. Southwest winds 15 knots with Thunder shower possibility. And Sunday, north, northeast, 10 knots with rain. But yeah. we'll see. We'll just watch the weather and see what happens there. Yeah, yeah. They, have, they haven't been too good at predicting much of anything. So I almost look as planning on the days where it's supposed to be really bad as being the potentially good days. Well, you know, I, I get in so many dives because I don't usually cancel my dive until the morning of. You know, I mean, yeah, the forecast will... Tough doom and gloom, but you don't really mm-hmm. know until you look at the current conditions. Yeah, and, and that's the big thing is what's what's it doing and what's it going to do. You know, you got one to twos. Is it going to lay down or is it going to turn into three to fours? Right. One to twos one, aren't bad. One twos are, are diveable. Yeah, you can do yeah. that. One to twos you can do. Three to fours gets a little little iffy. Yeah, to, to me, the three to fours, it really is what it's going to do. If it's going to lay down... Then okay, we'll get in. But if you if you don't know for sure, you hate to to have those three to fours go to seven to eights. Mm. Well, you can kind of look look at the wind direction, and that'll give you an idea whether it's building or receding. And you know there are no different websites we use out there between the NOAA websites, you know iWindSurf, and um, you know everyone's always got always got their favorite app that you know works or doesn't work for them. It's just a matter of you know making the best judgment call on what the weather's going to do. And yeah. being prepared if it, if it does worse. Yeah, give me those winds out of the east, about a half a knot. That's, those are the good ones. Yeah, for us, yeah. Yeah, but it's kind of hard to hold out for those because you just don't get that many of them. No, no, not a lot. But I've, I've, there's been a lot of them where I'll look at the charts and say, God, I bet we've, it's got to be five or six foot rollers out there. And then you, you get out and it's not much at all. Uh, so you can't just necessarily well, go by the wind direction. Well, you can look at the uh, buoys too. No. Yes. Jim, are, are the buoys still out? Uh, last I checked, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they've been yeah, keeping them out couple... through November the last couple of years, I think. And that's really your best bet as far as what the current conditions are. Well, I was watching something on one of the news sites or the weather sites, and they were saying that they think that this is going to be an early uh, winter for us in Lake Michigan and that we're going to have a lot of lake effect. Well, I'm sure it'll be worse than last year. We, we kind of lucked out. It was a pretty easy year last time yeah. around. But. Yeah, the year before we had record ice cover. Mm-hmm. So we're probably going to be somewhere in between the two. But I'm hoping we get enough ice where I can get some ice dives in because I, I can't tell you the last time I did a good ice dive. Well, you just got to be in uh, – make, make, make sure that your gear's ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Probably time to upgrade some undergarments too. Well, Jim set me up with some real nice ones there. Uh, talk to Jim about it. Yes, uh, I see that the dive shop has had some some deals on dry suits that look pretty good. Yeah, we do right now. Yeah, that's one of the best ways to extend the diving season is 
picking up a dry suit. Well, and there are quite a few people that use them use them year round too. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna go deep, you know, the water below sixty feet is seldom much above fifty. And you know, it's if the up if the if the weather above the water permits using a dry suit, you, know, you probably should. Although I, I I go wet when I can myself, just because I even the winter and the tear off the dry suit. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, it's I need I need to pick up a new wetsuit. Uh, I didn't this year. I thought I would, but maybe next year. Now we're firmly in dry suit weather. Yeah, we um, Rob and I did some. Oh, out looking out looking for a tank out there in Glen, and we were in our dry suits. We were just waiting. We were in our dry suits and need every bit of it. So that was interesting. I think my thermostat's broke. I used to uh, be able to handle it, and this this year it's. I feel like I need a blanket on all the time. Well, you got anything to plug, Kevin? Uh, the usual stuff. Uh, I encourage your listeners to, to uh, use our local libraries, great resources, and thank the staff for being there and doing what they do. Also, support your local dive shops. We always like to get that nice bargain online, but those bargains online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks for you. How about you, Jim? You got anything to plug? Nothing in particular. Just uh, the water's still warm. It's still soft. Keep diving. Absolutely like to thank everybody who's in the chat room and everybody who donated. We did pick up a few Patreon supporters in the last week, and that goes and helps out quite a bit. We're getting close to the point where we can upgrade Mac's audio equipment. Uh, he's not here tonight. He's having some Skype problems, but hopefully we'll get Mac all settled away for next week. So thank uh, our recent Patreon supporters. We also have to thank our Dive Nitrox-level supporter, Scott Holbert and Vanessa Homiak, both of them at that dive nitrox level. Also, again, as we did in the beginning of the show, thank WRVO Radio for having us on the air another year. We're getting ready to sign a commitment for another season of shows, so look forward to extending the relationship with them. And you can listen to us on WRVO Outdoors. If you like the hunting, fishing, scuba diving, go ahead and drop over to their website and take a listen. Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. I sent you a couple. I saw the one. Let me see what the other one is. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, let's see that one. Do you, you think that one's a good one for tonight? Oh, either one. Yeah. I mean, Kevin's on, so I'm sure that would be a good one. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's one you definitely want to do when Kevin's on. What the, what the, 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 the second one I sent you. Okay, the last one? Yeah. You know, I, I, can, I can sign off now, you realize. No, 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 no. You 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 would definitely enjoy this one. All right. Bring okay. it on. The scuba diver was visiting her blonde friend who'd acquired two dogs and asked her what their names were. The blonde responded by saying that one of the dogs was named Rolex and the other was Timex. Her friend said, whoever heard of someone naming their dogs that? Hello, answered the blonde. They're watchdogs. That's not the one I was talking about. I sent you. I sent you one on uh, um, Skype. Skype. Oh, Skype. Let me yeah, I sent you that. two on Skype. Oh, I didn't even see those. Oh, well, maybe, yeah, they, maybe. they were better. I mean, the the, the one you did, we can you know, we'll, we a can warm make up? tonight a double double joke night. Okay, we can do that. Oh my goodness, this yeah, do that second. Up. Oh wow. Okay, here let me get it copied over. So this is what makes radio really exciting. Listen to me do a cut and paste. Oh, edit, okay. edit. It'll come right out. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, we're we're highly edited constantly. 
Okay, so you say the hey, second of the two? Yeah, the second of the two, I think, is a better Kevin joke. Okay. One evening, a father overheard his son saying his prayers. God bless Mommy, Daddy, and Grammy. Goodbye, Grandpa. Well, the farmer thought that was strange, but he soon forgot about the next day, and his grandfather died. A month later, the father heard the son saying prayers again. God bless Mommy. God bless Daddy. Goodbye, Grammy. The next day, the grandmother died. Well, the father was getting more than a little worried to the whole situation. One week later, the father once again heard the son's prayers. God bless Mommy. Goodbye, Daddy. That nearly gave the father a heart attack. He didn't say anything, but he got to early to go to work, and he would miss the traffic. He stayed all through lunch and dinner. Finally, at midnight, he went home. He was still alive. When he got home, he apologized to his wife. I'm sorry, honey. I had a very bad day at work today. You think you've had a bad day. You think you've had a bad day, the wife yelled. The mailman dropped dead on the doorstep this morning. <laughs> All right. Yep. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I want to point out, though, that uh, it's a good joke, but you've used that one before. Did we? You did. Yep. Hmm. So I've, been, I've, been list, I've been listening to the podcast, and that was used, like, I'm sure within the last, uh, I don't know, 30 podcasts. I'm sure oh. of that. Hmm. All the yep. good ones. <laughs> well. All right. And yeah, I I heard that when I was at work. So I was okay. that, I listen, I, I listened to them when I well I, I listened to them when I'm at work, you know. So that was quite appropriate to hear it at work. Mm, good. <laughs> well, here right, you've got you've I, got I, one in the wings for next week now. Yeah, we've got one in the wings. So, uh, but I do have one that. Uh, so who gave me this one? I think this one was Rod. Okay, now this one is bad. So. Well, you said it came from Rod. Enough said. Yeah. An Irish daughter had not been home for over five years. Upon her return, her father cursed her heavily. Where have you been all this time, child? Why did you not write us? Not even a line. Why didn't you call? Can you not understand you put your old mother through? The girl crying replied, Dad, I became a prostitute. You what? Get out of here, you shameless harlot, sinner. You're a disgrace to this Catholic family. Okay, Dad, as you wish. I only came back to give Mom this luxury fur coat. Title deed to a 10-bedroom mansion plus $5 million savings certificate. For my little brother, a gold Rolex. And for you, Daddy, a new Mercedes limited edition convertible that's parked right outside plus a membership to the country club. An invitation to spend New Year's Eve on board my new yacht in the Riviera. What was it you said you'd become, says Dad? The girl crying again, a prostitute, Daddy. Oh, my goodness, you scared me half to death, girl. I thought you said a Protestant. Come here and give your dad an old hug. Do we need to edit that one out? <laughs> send, send the hate mail to. Just a commentary. Uh huh. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you got a dead silence, you got a chuckle, and you got a groaner. So if you didn't like one of the jokes, just pretend we didn't say it, and you got two that were yeah. two others to listen to. Yeah, so just. Uh, if you have any jokes, send them. You can send comments to the show at scoobobsessed.com. And until next week, why don't you go out there and get wet? Stay safe. And remember, according to the lionfish article, no divers were harmed in the killing of the lionfish. So far. <laughs>
recording has been completed.